Thank you, Clinton. One of my favorite songs. Awesome. Thank you. You know, on any given Sunday during football season, you find three teams on the field. Three teams. You have a home team, you have a visiting team, and then you have the team of officials. They are on the field, but not of the field, if that makes sense. They are in the middle of a conflict. Two teams violently trying to get what they think is theirs. Two teams going different directions towards opposite goals. And smack dab in the middle of these two teams is another team that is dressed to look like zebras. And their job, their job is to enforce the rules on the field of play. Every field of play in every stadium every Sunday, and I guess, of course, Monday and Thursday now. But they cannot act on their own accord. That is forbidden. In fact, if they do that, they are considered illegitimate officials. They follow the rules that are handed down from 345 Park Avenue in New York, New York. That is where the commissioner resides. That is where the NFL offices are. And they determine what rules will be enforced on the field of play. There's even a book. And it's the official's job to follow the book and enforce the rules that are contained within that book. If they don't, they are deemed illegitimate and they lose their job. So if they are persuaded by the fans, the coaches, or the players, they become illegitimate participants. There's a kingdom. And Jesus is king of this kingdom. And he has established a third team. There's been a lot of teams throughout history. There have been teams based on skin color. There have been teams based on political views. There have been teams based on social class. There have been teams based on gender. There have even been teams based on religion. And in the middle of all these teams and all this conflict, there's a team of officials People whose allegiance is not to what's happening on the field, but to the league office and the commissioner who has placed them there. The tragedy, of course, today is that there are many officials who are influenced and mixed up in what is going on on the field. They become immersed in the conflict, and by doing so, they have been rendered illegitimate. The Sermon on the Amount, did I say the Sermon on the Amount? Every year at Red River Family Encampment, I have to give the Sermon on the Amount. Do you know what that is? I have to stand up and beg people for money. And uh, so I guess that's, that's a faux pas of mine. The Sermon on the Mount is a declaration of dependence. It is an announcement to the officials. It is a victory speech for the losers of society. It is the playbook for the Christian. In Jesus' day, there were Pharisees and there were Sadducees. There were Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. There were men and women and Romans. There were a lot of different teams. And there was always conflict among these teams. But within this conflict, Jesus calls another team. A team filled with individuals who rise above the conflict and seek to live by the conduct handed down by the commissioner. You ever play Red Rover as a kid? 
You know what Red Rover is. You have two teams, and they're spaced apart. These two teams line up, and they hold hands. And one begins by saying, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Martha or whoever right over. And he or she runs as fast as they can and tries to break through the chain of hands. And once they do, then they become a part of that other team. And then the next team calls out, and, and this goes back and forth until finally, uh, who knows? I, I don't know the object of the game. I don't know who wins. I never could figure that out. But if you've ever played Red Rover, you know that there's really two types of participants, right? There's that one person, that one kid that when his name gets called, he's a little over aggressive and he runs full speed and he can't wait to tear through those hands. He has no regard for his own body or anybody else's. And then you have that other kid that really doesn't want his name to get called. And when it does, he or she just kind of trots to the other end and kind of half-heartedly breaks through the chain. They don't really want to participate. This cultural game of Red Rover it's what we see Jesus kind of addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says to the feeble, come over. Send over the marginalized. Send right over the losers of society. Because these are the ones who will win in the end. The ones who are poor in spirit. The ones who are gentle. The ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The ones who are merciful. The ones who are pure in heart. The peacemakers. Those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. These are truly the ones who are blessed. And to these folks, Jesus says, go be lights to the world. Go be salt to the earth. Go love your enemies. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Store up treasures in heaven without being worried about what you're going to gain as far as material things because God is going to take care of you. And in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces his audience to this upside-down kingdom. He gives the Beatitudes. He talks about some other things that are influence types of, of issues. And then in chapter 6, he teaches how one's relationship to God and our devotion, our behavior is affected by how we live out what he's talking about. Then in chapter 7, he shifts to talking about how our faith affects how we interact with the people of this world. Look at it with me. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Three relationships are being talked about here. Three relationships are being described. You have the relationship between our brothers and sisters in Christ, then you have our relationship with the lost or, in this case, those who flatly reject the good news, the dogs and the pigs. And then finally, you have our relationship with God, the Heavenly Father. And Jesus starts with judging. Now, we've talked about this recently in our Sunday night series, so we won't go into great detail. But basically, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees and saying, you're no better off than the people you are condemning. It must have been quite a shock to their system for Jesus to say, look, these people that you think are going to hell, they're way better off than you are. In essence, Jesus is saying, you're going to hell by the way that you're acting, by propping yourself up and taking a standard that God does not approve of. 
The whole entire argument that Jesus is making here can be summed up in, can you take what you give? That's what Jesus is saying. Can you take what you give? Be careful the standard you use to measure other people because you will be judged by that very standard. And it's hypercritical, hypocritical, self-righteous to demand that others live up to a standard that you're not currently meeting. And so that is the heart of Jesus' teaching here. The Jews felt like there was a double standard of judgment, that they were the chosen ones, and therefore the, the judgment from God would be lenient, lighter. However, they believed that God would stoke the fires of hell with Gentiles, and so therefore the Gentiles would receive a harsher, more severe punishment, and Jesus says, no, 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 you're not any better off than they are. In fact, you're worse off because you don't even recognize it. So that is at the heart of what Jesus is teaching here. Then he speaks about casting our pearls before swine. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, one thing we know about pigs, I think, is that they don't appreciate pearls. Uh, they don't care about pearls. It has no value to them. Humans like pearls, especially human women. They appreciate the value of pearls, right? But in essence, Jesus is talking about something he mentioned in Matthew 10, verse 24, same kind of thing, or verse 14, I should say, same kind of thing when he says, and whoever does not receive you nor listen to your words as you leave that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. So Jesus is educating his apostles on how to handle rejection. Don't repeatedly share the gospel with someone who rejects Christ and rejects the good news. In other words, there are some who are ready and willing to listen and respond, and there are others who are going to respond in anger, rebuke, and they're going to push you away. And he says, that's fine. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. It's not your job to convert them. It's not your job to cram it down their throat. You present it. It's not our job to make the gospel acceptable. It's our job to make the gospel accessible, and that's what Jesus is saying here. So don't cast your pearls before swine. His instruction to his apostles is to simply go somewhere else. That's what you do when you're rejected. Go somewhere else. Move on. There are other people who need to hear the gospel. Then notice verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or what person is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, it will not give him a snake, will he? So if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Is it just me, or does this seem a little out of place? Kind of seems random, doesn't it? I mean, you've been talking about judgment, you've been talking about handling rejection, and now all of a sudden you throw in prayer. And look, I'm all for prayer. Jesus obviously was all about prayer. But this seems like one of those oblong puzzle pieces that you're trying to, to cram in and make fit. Now, I don't believe that's what's happening here. I don't believe Scripture is random. I believe it all has a purpose and a meaning. And so I think our our role and our responsibility as students is to figure out what that purpose and that meaning is, right? Why does this fit here? I'm going to give you my take if that's okay. Do you want to hear it? Probably going to give it to you anyway, so. We know that Matthew chapter 7 is the conclusion to Jesus' sermon. So Jesus is winding things down. He's wrapping things up. We'll talk about this in the next few weeks as we wind things up in this series. And Jesus is doing something that any preacher worth his salt will do. Ask and answer the question, so what? So what? 
I mean, what does all this mean? Any preacher worth his salt is going to give you information and help you try to uh, incite transformation. So you tell me all these things, you give me all this stuff, what do I do with it? How does this make me a better person? How does this help me to live as a disciple here on earth so that I can get heaven someday? Jesus is asking and answering the question, so what? How do I process the information so that it leads to transformation? Well, one way that you can do that, one key component to application is prayer. You ever gotten a car key in the mail? Car dealerships used to do this all the time. You remember this? They would send you a key in the mail with a letter, and the letter would state, hey, you come down to our dealership, and you bring this key with you, and you can put it in the prize car, and if it turns the ignition, you get to drive it off the lot. It's yours. Well, there was probably a 100% chance that you weren't going to start that car. Therefore, the key was pretty much worthless. Might as well throw it away. It's not worth the price of postage that was paid to send you that letter. And there are many people who look at prayer the same way. They've tried to start the car, and it just doesn't work, and so they feel like that the, the prayer is worthless, it's not, it's not helpful. Why bother? Maybe they've tried to put the key in the house instead, or maybe they've tried to open a locker instead, and it doesn't work. And so they just toss it aside. But I believe the key to understanding verses 7 through 11 here in Matthew 7 is putting the key in the ignition that is Jesus Christ and allowing him to start your life. I think that's the key. In other words, what do I do when I'm persecuted? How do I become poor in spirit? How do I become gentle? How do I become pure in heart? How do I turn the other cheek? How do I do that? How do I become a better uh, faster? How do I become a better storer upper? How do I overcome my anxiety? How do, I, how do I refrain from being so judgmental? Do I just try harder? Do I just pull myself up by the bootstraps? Do I need to be more focused? Maybe read more spiritual books and listen to more podcasts, dear church? Maybe all of that would be good. Certainly listening to dear church would be good for you. But that's not what it's all about. That's not where you start, right? Where do you start? With prayer. You start on your knees. Ask him. Ask him to help you be the person that's described in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek to be that person that is described in the Sermon on the Mount because there's a time to pray and there's a time to get up off your knees and do something. Ask him to help you be that person. Seek to be that person and then knock. Look for doors of, op of opportunity to open to you so that you can live out this sermon. Jesus is linking our relationship with God to our relationships with other people. He's done this before. Remember Matthew 6, 14 and 15? For if you forgive other people of their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your Father will not forgive your offenses. It's the vertical and the horizontal relationship that we talk about all the time. You've got to get the vertical right before you can get the horizontal right. And don't expect the vertical to be straight if the horizontal is crooked. It doesn't work that way. You can't say, I love God and hate your brother or sister. You can't love your brother or sister and not love God. The two go hand in hand. Vertical affects the horizontal. You get the vertical right, the others fall in place. The horizontal presupposes the vertical. Don't fool yourself into thinking the vertical can be straight if the horizontal is crooked. And Jesus says that we can approach God with confidence knowing that he has promised to give when we ask. Even the evil person takes care of his own, he says. 
If the wicked person is motivated to give good gifts to his children, well then how much more so is a good God? A good God gives good gifts to his children. And what are the good gifts that we need from God? Well, I would submit to you that the good gifts that we need from God are divine help and divine grace. How do I live up to the standard of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I'm going to need help, and I'm going to need grace. How do I get it? Ask, seek, knock. Unfortunately, some abuse this scripture, namely the prosperity preachers, and they pull it out of context and say, whatever you ask of God, no matter what it is, he will give it to you. Kind of a carte blanche approach to prayer. Just ask, and he's this divine blessings vending machine, and he'll dispense it. Whatever it is. You want a new car? Ask God, and he'll give it to you. Okay, well, I did, and he didn't give it to me. Well, you don't have enough faith. That is not what Jesus is getting at here. That is not the purpose or the context of this at all. Asking, seeking, and knocking has nothing to do with goods. It has to do with the good. Look at it again. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. You ever hear somebody talk about the it factor? So-and-so just has it, especially when it's applied to sports or like singing or performing. They just have it, and what is it? Eh, Nobody really knows. I mean, it's not something you can really define. It's hard to, to put into words. It's kind of vague, but you know it when you see it. It is that unique quality that shines through in a person's character and and, and really sets them apart. The it factor. Right here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, we have the it factor. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What's the it? I would suggest to you that the it is that divine grace and that divine help that we so desperately need to live as kingdom citizens. However... I also think the case could be made that the it that's being talked about here is not only a what, but a who. It is Jesus Christ. Ask, and he will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find him. Knock, and he will be opened to you. Jesus is the it factor. He makes all the difference. He is the inner quality that shines through in our character and sets us apart from the crowd. Have you noticed as you read through the the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus embodies everything he taught? Every single thing he taught about, he is. You ever notice that? All the Beatitudes he embodies. He is a perfect representation of all the Beatitudes When he talks about being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, that's him. He even says, I'm the light of the world in John 8, 12. You move into when he talks about fasting and praying and not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing, all those kind of things. Jesus embodies that perfectly. Then you get into Matthew chapter 7. He's going to start talking about two gates and two paths and two trees and two foundations. He's all of that. He is a perfect visual representation of everything that he taught on in the Sermon on the Mount. So in essence, he's basically saying, you want to live like a kingdom citizen? Just live like me. Just be me. I mean, that's really easy to say, isn't it? 
How can I live like Jesus? How can I be like him? Well, you're going to need divine assistance, aren't you? You're going to need lots and lots of grace. So ask for it. Seek that help. Knock so that doors of opportunity will be opened to you. Jesus is the embodiment of all that he has taught. And so the question for us becomes, do you want the goods or do you want the good? It should be noted that the commands ask, seek, and knock appear in the Greek present indicative. And you're saying, okay, don't get scholarly on me. What does that mean? The Greek present indicative simply means that ask, seek, and knock are continuous, persistent action, and they should be read that way. So essentially, Jesus is saying, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, don't ever quit, because there is never a time when you won't need divine assistance and and grace. There is never a time that you won't need Jesus, right? Sadly, all too often what happens is that our prayer life becomes kind of like the national anthem. The national anthem is played or sung before every sporting event. It's a tradition in our country, and it is a great tradition. But you know as well as I do, it has no bearing on the game. It doesn't affect the game one bit. And sometimes people view prayer the same way. I do it because it's a tradition. I know I need to. I know it's, it's a good ritual to engage in, but it doesn't affect their life whatsoever. It doesn't change their life any at all. But folks, that's the whole goal, is to connect the ritual with the relationship. It's all about investing in the relationship. Poverty of spirit cannot be attained without Jesus. Meekness is impossible without Jesus. Loving your enemies starts with loving Jesus. Character for the kingdom citizen is a side effect of embracing Jesus. Our love manifests itself in this life by living for him and loving him, getting the vertical straight so that the horizontal is straight. We could say it this way, who I am is a result of who I am with. The closer I am to Jesus, the more it will affect my character. It's been said that the longer two people are married, the more they start looking like each other. Sorry for some of you. But I think there's some truth to that. You've probably seen that. But nowhere is it more true than in your relationship with Jesus. The more you invest in that relationship, the longer you're married to him, the more you resemble him. And isn't that the goal? To look more and more like Jesus every single day. To grow with him. To grow up with him. So that we mirror him. So that we reflect his light. So that others look at us and they, they say, he's got it. Whatever it is, he's got it. Well, the it is Jesus, and you've got it. There was a grandfather that wanted to play a game with his granddaughter. And he told her, he said, honey, I've got a a quarter in my hand, and if you can find it, you can have it. She goes, well, show it to me. He goes, no, you got to find it. And he made a fist, and he held out his hand, and she started prying away his fingers to reveal no quarter. And she was disappointed. She said, where's the quarter? And so he stuck out his other hand. He made a strong fist. 
She began prying away the fingers until finally she found the quarter hidden underneath the index finger and his thumb. And she was elated. Now, he was going to give her the quarter anyway. Why would he make her go to all that trouble? Why this little exercise? Maybe because he wanted to see if she would follow instructions? No, that's not it. Maybe because she wanted to see if, uh, he wanted to see if she would trust him? No, that's not it either. The reason he went to all that trouble is simply this. He just wanted her to hold his hand. That was it. Folks, I, I don't know why God hasn't answered your prayer. I, I don't know why he's waiting or why you think that he's ignoring you. But one thing I think I do know is this. Every time you pray, every time you pray, God is teaching you to hold his hand and to walk through life with him. Every time you pray, he's teaching you that to hold his hand and to walk through life with him. So, you know what you need to do? Ask. Seek and knock. Can we pray with you this morning? Do you have a need? If so, Clinton's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?